0: Greetings, everyone, this part of the service, it's been a blessing to be here and to think of heaven, and you think there is only one door into heaven. There was one door in the ark, whoever did not go through the door of the ark perished. There is one door in heaven. Whoever does not go through that door, the Lord Jesus Christ, perishes. But for those who go through is salvation. There is deliverance. There is a completely brand new life on the other side. Much better than the other side of the flood, which was a harsher climate, a difficult life, and all that. Heaven is going to be much better. So I appreciate the thought this morning. Leonard, there was somebody, I just remember a little bit in my memory, of somebody who was actually on a deathbed, or he thought he was. So he did a study on heaven. And he just didn't die, so his study got pretty long. Eventually he wrote a book, and for the rest of his life, he basked in the reality of that in-depth reality of that brush of death that he had in the study and putting himself into that, blessed him for the rest of his life. I never read the book. I'm not even sure which book it is. I just remember hearing about it. I imagine it would be a blessing to read that book because not only was he blessed for the rest of his life here on earth, thinking about heaven, but also blessed many other people. Jesus for the joy who set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. So let us just pause for a word of prayer at this time. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Giving us many, many multitude times more than we deserve. Thank you, Lord, for saving wretches like us, bringing you into our, into your family and bringing us together. And Lord, thank you that we have your word, that we just have glimpses, but they are beautiful glimpses of our future life also glimpses, Lord, of the reality of your grace here on earth, what your purposes are, what your victories are, the, how we, how we uh, heard already this morning that we have victory over the devil, over sin, and Satan, and Lord, how you in your grace continue to uh, discipline us, chastise us for the purpose of personal holiness, and Lord, and then put a message in our heart and our tongues to reach out to others. Lord, your plan is marvelous, though many times we understand it is painful, many times sometimes it's confusing, but Lord, it is definitely your purpose and will, and we thank you for it this morning. Pray, Lord, you be with us this morning in the study this morning. Ask for your grace to be upon each one of our hearts that we can understand and receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You can turn this morning to uh, Judges chapter 2. Read verses 6 to 12. The message this morning is for the home congregation. There's a number of visitors here. I'm glad you're here. And I am sure, well, I trust. I am sure. Maybe I have more confidence in my words than I think. But I trust you can get something out of it also as a visitor. But, um, the message this morning is specifically for the local congregation, sharing some of my heart, and um, I will have some disclaimers coming on. I don't claim to be it to be balanced in all areas, and it's also my perspective, so I'll have those disclaimers. But let's read here in Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 6. This is the other end of what we heard this morning, what Brian said about Joshua. He had a vision to go into the promised land and conquer it. Now we're at the other end. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Geash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord the God of their fathers, which had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, neither the works which he had done for Israel. It was said it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the children of Israel, even though they came out of Egypt in one night, it took 40 years to get Egypt out of their hearts. And once that happened, there was the victories and the blessings of going into the promised land. When they finally got it, when they finally listened to their leaders and put their hearts behind, in this case it was Joshua then, and they went around the walls of Jericho and they followed the gods' ways. Their victories began to come and come and come. And they actually lived in houses they did not build, and they actually ate from groves they didn't plant, and they went into their inheritance. But how quickly they, as a nation, forgot God when the original generation passed. And we rightly ask, why? Is it normal, or should we say, is it inevitable that there are periods of revival followed by periods of decline for God's people? She'll be just lay over and say, okay, that's the way it is. This morning, I want to um, examine the concept of sustainability. The title is Sustainable Churches. In particular, I want to examine corporate sustainability. If prevention is better than a cure, then there is there a way to prevent us from getting sick in the first place? Now, the first part of the message is the easy part. It's to point out the problems we have, the faults. And I personally am very good at that. In fact, I think I'm gifted in that except someone pointed out to me that that is not one of the spiritual gifts. (laughs) It's not on any of the several lists of gifts found in the Bible. But, discernment is a gift. The ability to judge between right and wrong is a gift from God. Because if if uh, if someone persists in the wrong, like it says, he that loveth not his brother abideth in darkness, stumbles around. In other words, he actually eventually loses the ability to actually discern. So, discernment is a gift. And don't disparage that gift in other people if you don't excel in it. So first, we will look at why sustainability is important, even essential for a favorable outcome of God's people. Israel was not very sustainable. One generation, and then they were out. The evangelical church in America is declining. Even with all the radio programs and Bible teaching and with the major and continual increase in religious movies, even with all the social programs, all the counseling centers, all the outreach events, evangelistic ministries and mega entertainment churches. The movement is not only not growing, it is in decline. Its influence influence, appears to be shifting and its morals are lower than they used to be. George Barna, the pollster, states this. He said, the majority of the people in their 20s who went to church in their teens, 61% of 20 some people, uh, 20 year old people who went to church in their teens no longer go to church. They're spiritually disengaged. They no longer actively attend church or read the Bible or pray. And so, it, as a movement in its current trajectory, is not sustainable. We, in our time, with the charity movement, have seen a lot of great things happen. We had a lot of lives changed. The moral and spiritual realities of whole families and whole churches, and even yea, touched whole groups of churches and conferences. The moral, spiritual realities of a lot of churches had been raised. It's had an impact on thousands and thousands of people and churches, not thousands of churches. The impact was quite large. But what is one of the things that was not part of the strength of that movement? Sustainability was not one of the strengths. Like the early settlers of this country... They go into virgin forest soil, and they would plant the main crops, tobacco and cotton. And they would plant those crops year after year. And the crops were impressive for the first number of years. But then, eventually, the fertility of the soil declined, and the repetitious monocrop planting with little replenishment, led in a decline of the yield of the crops. So what they did is they moved on to virgin soil again, and they repeated the process until they ran out of new places to go to. And then they were stuck with poor, depleted land from which they could barely eke out a living. Along came George Washington Carver. He taught the poor farm people... In the South, techniques in sustainable agriculture. It's not that the farmers didn't want good crops. It's just that they were using the wrong practices that kept them from improving their results. Once they understood and they changed their, their uh, input, then their outcome also improved. To be a success in farming across the generations... You need to have sustainable farming practices. We know that. Sustainability, the able to last or continue for a long time. Now, is that God's will for His church? Well, we know that the church is actually sustainable as a whole. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, He said, "I." will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we don't need to doubt that the church is sustainable. Even though in the last days pearliest times will come, the church is going to stand. Even though the love of many so wax cold, the church will prevail even though false teachers will arise and will deceive many, the church will not fail. So, if the sustainability of the church is not in question, why do we need to address it? Since the Lord himself is a sustainer and a preserver of the church, and he is. He really is. But since he is, why do we need to concern ourselves about it? Why don't we just serve God with abandon and let God take care of the rest? That's the real path of faith, isn't it? What do you think? Hmm? Faith has, worked. faith has worked. Okay. Apparently, Jesus didn't think so. What I meant, didn't think that you just let God take care of it and 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 everything will be okay. He didn't think so. Not if you consider the seven churches in Revelation. In there, five of them were told to return or to repent or else they would have that candlestick removed from their midst. There was no promise given to individual churches of their unconditional preservation or sustainability. Yes, there were plenty of promises given, but they were not unconditional promises they were given to individuals and those promises were given to individuals and they were given to churches but they were conditional promises so let's turn now to uh, Ephesus, Ephesus Revelation Revelation 2 and we'll read about the church at Ephesus Revelation chapter 2 we'll start at verse 1 Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and hath not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore, for when thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Leonard. (laughs) That's paradise. You know, we all have ideals. I have ideals. You have them. And we pursue our ideals based because our values are based on our ideals. Some of our ideals are for purity of doctrine and practice. Some of us have ideals for love of God and value for people. And our ideals, as we pursue them, have results. Some results are short-term some um, results are long-term. It's the long-term results that we're looking at tonight, uh, today, this morning. Long-term results, and we'll get into more into Ephesus a little later there. Twenty years ago, there was a popular women's magazine in the in the charity circles. Anybody remember what the title of it is? Yes. No, not that one. That one, too. Yes. Gentle Spirit, the one I'm thinking of. It was popular in our homeschooling circles and highly recommended by leadership at charity. The Gentle Spirit magazine. One of the regular contributors in that magazine was a family who promoted natural health care. All natural health care. Exclusive natural health care. They took the position that the modern healthcare system in the West is simply a conspiracy. Now I, I'm going by memory now because I don't know exactly in every detail, but I'm going by memory. But as the modern healthcare as a conspiracy controlled all the information and the power of the healthcare system. This family promoted the theory that if you keep the body built up, eating healthy foods, organic foods, it will be able to remain healthy and fight off any pathogen that would come against it in nature. And as such, they were very anti healthcare modern health care to the core. And taking antibiotics for anything was absolutely taboo. If you were sick, you build up the body. You really shouldn't get sick because you should have the body build up. A reader wrote in and agreed to a point about the theory of keeping the body healthy. But to reject antibiotics on all counts? She stated correctly that in many cases of sickness, the building up the body is not necessarily an exclusive option. And if you didn't take antibiotics, you died. If you do not take certain short-term solutions, you did not have a long-term solution. It was eliminated for you because there was no long-term. As I remember, they actually responded with a long-winded response defending their position, and it was, I guess... It's like using a lot of words to not say anything is really what it ended up being because I didn't understand it. But the reader that was writing to them was pleading for a balanced position when it comes to the health of our bodies. Of course, try to maintain the immune system of your body. And it is true that whole segments of the health care system exist because people don't do that. Of course, there is money to be made in healthcare, care, and some doctors and pharmaceuticals exploit the system. Of course, there is an over-reliance on antibiotics, and there's a major crisis of unhealthy lifestyle practices in this country, and not too far out from me either. But that does not justify taking an extreme and unsustainable position on the other side. Now, it seems that this problem of going to ideal extremes is a characteristic of human nature. And as Christians, we're not too far removed from human nature, it seems. We have a good dose of it. So, we have churches that are very strict in belief and conduct. And then we have churches who say that grace replaces the law. We had those who don't believe in miracles anymore. Then we had those who believe in the apostolic gifting of miracles. We had those who oppose revival. And we had those who believe revival will solve all of our problems. That is the tendency of the human heart. Now the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. He was, the Apostle John was one of the early pillars of the Jerusalem church. But at some point, he disappeared out of the book of Acts, and you don't hear about him anything. So we're going to go by Christian tradition. Tradition has it that he moved to Ephesus, this church that we just read about. And he ministered there before and after his banishment to the Isle of Patmos. And all the other churches, the seven churches in Revelation, were all in that general area. That actually, if you would take those churches in their order, Ephesus first, and is it Pergamos next? I forget, I don't have it here. But if you actually take a road trip, they are in order. First going to the north, and then around and come around to the south, and end up at Laodicea, further south. It's a circular letter. And so, John probably ministered in all those churches. He was familiar with all those churches. But Ephesus was his home church. And that's where he was banished. uh, And Patmos was an island in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Ephesus. And there's where he wrote Revelation. Now, what would it be like to have Brother Leonard... Or Brother Mose, get a revelation from God concerning all the local churches. And give an insight, heart evaluation of each one. And we would have Oasis. We would have Ephraim, We would have Charity. We would have Living Hope, Harmony, New Hope, Shalom. That's seven. And one of the, somebody who has ministered in all those churches would get a revelation from God and just simply describe us. Maybe we like it, maybe we wouldn't. But that's what happened here. Now, the Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love. That's because he wrote so much on loving each other, both in the Gospel of John, but especially in 1 John. Love seemed to be the theme from and the center of his ministry. And it was that which was missing in the church in Ephesus. Jesus had a revelation with his home church and what is the only problem? A lack of love. Tradition has it that as a very old man when he could no longer walk they would carry him up to the church at the end of the service and he would stand up on his tottery legs and he'd say, children love each other. So, John is known as the Apostle of Love. But John is not always known for the Apostle of Love. Jesus gave John a nickname. Does anybody know what John's nickname was? Sons of Thunder. He was one of the Sons of Thunder. Turn. uh, Well, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it in Mark 3. And uh, this is where Jesus is actually going down through the twelve disciples that he chose. Mark three seventeen, and he says, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And he, Jesus, surnamed them Borneges, which is the sons of thunder. The apostle John is a son of thunder. And you think, now how in the world did an apostle of love get a nickname, the son of thunder? Well, you can turn to Luke chapter 9 and we can look at a little bit of an idea of the Apostle John. Luke chapter 9 and verse 52. And uh, this is when Jesus is going toward Jerusalem and they were going to a Samaritan village. And he, Jesus sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritan to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Then his disciples James and John saw this, and they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Here's the apostle of love responding to someone who didn't accept them. And they said, Master, let's have some thunder here. We even have a biblical example. A very godly man in the Old Testament did this. And these people here, let's deal with them. Son of thunder. Mark chapter 10. You can turn there. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 37. Here we come up again. And uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're the two brothers again. Come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatever we should desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy glory. Sons of thunder, jockeying for position and power and influence. They came to Jesus together. That means they talked about it. That means in, in somewhere in their privacy, they were discussing how to do this. And then they came to Jesus. They didn't know exactly what's going to happen, but they were pretty sure that Jesus was going to be in some position of power. They knew he was the leader, but we wanted to be next to him. That sounds like the apostle of love, does it not? Not quite. It was so they could be on top and tell others what to do. How could, here's a question for you, how could a son of thunder ever come to be known as the apostle of love? Can you explain that to me? Actually, you can still see some of his thunder. When you look at the little book of First John, and when you read about the church at Ephesus, you can see some thunder there. In a nutshell, the church of Ephesus, which tradition has it he pastored for many years, there's some thunder there. Let's read it here. And I'm going to just go back to Revelation. I'm just going to read parts of it. it said Jesus, "said I know thy works, and thy labor." And thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles, and not, and hast found them liars. Thou hast borne, hast had patience, and for my sake name's sake hast labored, and has not fainted. But this thou hast, that thou also hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." Can you see the apostle of thunder here, testing and trying those who brought on false doctrine and false philosophies into the church? Because the early church had enemies on many fronts. The worst enemy of the early church was not persecution. It was false teaching and false beliefs which led to deviant living. Purity of doctrine and holiness of life were the main enemies of the early church. Now, there is some encouragement given about persecution. You go into Hebrews or you go into 1 Peter. There is an encouragement given to not be discouraged in the middle of trials and persecution. So that was a reality of the early church. It was a real reality. But by and large, the main threat of the church was and is errant teaching. A quote that I found, I don't know who to attribute to, is this. Half-hearted, lead, half-hearted leaders can never protect protect their congregation from wolves. And John, the Apostle John, the disciple of love, was not a half-hearted leader. He was protecting his congregation. When there were other congregations in their area who were at the verge of collapse, when you read The other churches in Revelation, some of them were very close to collapse. The church at Ephesus was not there in doctrine. This congregation was not, but it did have a serious problem. Some of the other churches had not uprooted something that should have been uprooted. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, the Jezebel, and I can't remember the number of things that were going on in the other churches, of course, at Laodicea. And they were seriously rebuked for it. Ephesus did very good housekeeping. And that is, is, that is absolutely essential. That good housekeeping to have a sustainable church. You must have it. But what was missing? You know... I would like to be a part of a church just like Ephesus with the missing part intact. Whether it is Ephesus Christian Fellowship or Oasis Christian Fellowship, I would like to be that kind of church with the missing part intact. Now, Now I'm going to come to my, my most difficult part. And I'll have some disclaimers coming up yet. But we know that there are some tensions under the table in this congregation. We try to, we talk about trying to get things up on the table so we can talk about it. We seem to have two sides of varying degrees that are somewhat fearful of each other. Some of the fears are, is this going to be a church? Just rules and regulations? Or is this church going to love everyone and keep on drifting to who knows where? Two sides. I'm going to venture into areas this morning that I may be misunderstood. I might be judged as critical or judgmental or maybe even unloving. And I'm quick to add that it's my understanding of the subject. But it's not an uneducated understanding. It is through many years of observations and many conversations over many years. So what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do this morning, I'm going to try to bring some things up on the table. And that's dangerous, to do that publicly. It's a little dangerous. It doesn't feel comfortable. That's what I meant by the visitors. This is for the home congregation. But maybe you could still learn something from it. And... It definitely is not the end of the conversation after I sit down. Maybe the beginning. It is my intention for us to get some language on some issues so we can talk about them. That's my intention. First, I'm going to introduce a concept coming right out of Frank Reed's emails. I see we don't have, I don't have to write it. I was going to write the thing down, but I'll just say it. Um, one of Frank Reed's email recently. He talked about a paradigm shift. Who, how many of you read that email here? One person. Okay. Paradigm shift. First time I heard that concept of a paradigm shift was 20 years ago. I remember the the spot. I remember the speaker. It was Joel Salatin which is a Virginia farmer promoting grass-based farming. And he talked about the paradigm shift that is needed to shift from industrial, chemical, industrial farming to the more natural-based whatever he was promoting. And he, the paradigm shift, it's the first time I ever heard that word. And here's what Frank said about a paradigm shift. He said, a paradigm just talking about a paradigm, what that is, is an accepted set of concepts that create a pattern, a standard, or method of operation, thinking, and practice. My, oh, my, how are you going to get that incorporated? A paradigm is an accepted set of concepts that create a pattern or a standard or a method of operation or thinking or practice, operation and thinking and practice, actually. Now, that's what a paradigm is. A paradigm is a way, a mode of thinking. It's what you accept. Now, a paradigm shift basically requires an adjustment of and sometimes a total change of thought. Former trusted and defended concepts and modes of function are challenged and replaced by newer and better, more useful or current approaches. A paradigm shift requires a revolution of shorts. It was just used the word. So we're going to talk about paradigm shift. Paradigm shift means when you shift from one mode or way of thinking or practicing to another one. It's a revolution of sorts, he says. And then he says, revolutions produce wars. He says, wars are fought to protect territory, whether it's geographical or philosophical or ideological. So a paradigm is a way of thinking. A paradigm of shift is a change of thinking, and which has revolutions in the middle of that thing usually, and then wars are thought. I don't know if that's making sense to you. So that's in very brief a paradigm shift, and a shift can happen either very quickly or slowly over time, but generally it's a little more of a quicker or in rapid succession. And a paradigm shift is neutral. It can be good. It can be bad. Paradigm shift does simply mean a change of thinking or change of of uh, of acting and practice. Now, here's the dangerous part for me. This is where I'm going to stick my neck out, and I might lose it. The message is about sustainability. 25 years ago, I was told very clearly not to leave our Mennonite church and join up with charity, which is what we did. Talk about a major paradigm shift. We went to a church that had no written standards. It rejected uniformity. It focused on the heart. They really worship over there. The people and the messages were inspiring. Gripping. God was there. We accepted a pretty major paradigm shift when we went over to charity. I can remember exact conversations. I was told to my face, yes, It looks good over there, but it's been tried many times, and it never lasts. Never. Never. Always, in the next generation, there is a major wholesale departure from the practices and convictions of the original members. Always. That's what I was told. We still went. That was countered by this. I know we've seen in history that has happened, but we have the godly home set here. There is teaching on the home, there is a focus on the next generation that is unparalleled. There's lots of training. There is lots of instruction. There is a tremendous amount of investment going into the next generation. This is probably an exception, right? That was the counter. We had enthusiastic teaching and the absolute belief in the promise that if you raise up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a promise of God. So the question that came back to those who said it can't work said, or the question given back to those who said it can't work said, surely look at all these teachings. Surely this time the result will be more positive. And the answer was a shrugging of the shoulders, say, well, maybe. We doubt it. Harmony then was started in 1995. And when we divided, we really divided. Interaction between the churches beyond special events or meetings was pretty well very, very little. Some of by default and eventually sometimes by choice. David Burkholder, he's a deacon at Harmony Now, was was in the original youth group at charity. The original youth group that was at charity, they had a youth group. He was part of it. In time, he said, 80% of the youth that were in that group did exactly what the critics said would happen. 80%. Four out of five left the beliefs and the practices of their parents and went a different direction. To be fair, some of them were just moving through. To be fair. That number is inflated. Okay? And they were never rooted. But they were there. They were in that, in that environment. They were in that teaching. But the result was much less than what was advertised in those early days. At Harmony, in the meanwhile, we struggled to find our way. I remember half-night prayer meetings. We had many joys, and we had many issues. Some of them almost took us under. But in time, a pattern emerged that, as it related to the next generation, there was much more sustainability than what was observed in many of the sister churches, including charity. Yes, there were some failures, but the results overall were much, much better. There are now numerous youth and young married people who now realize they had a loving and a secure and a stable church environment and experience to grow up in at Harmony. It was definitely not perfect, and there were still many regrets, and there was room for improvement. But this contrast came out especially when contrasted to other fellowship experiences. That was part of the frame of reference that we had when Oasis, divided from charity and from harmony, And we started this congregation. That was part of the frame of reference that we had when we started this congregation. And we started meeting as Oasis Christian Fellowship. Almost immediately, our paradigm that we were accustomed to was challenged. And how was that? Why was that? Well, there was a large number of new families coming right at the time that Oasis divided. Either people who had either recently started attending Harmony before the divide or they came immediately after the divide. And they came with new, different perspectives, different ideas. Some of them were completely new. Some of them were just different. And I'm not putting a moral value on them. I'm just giving you the, the, the uh, frame of reference that we're dealing with here. So, but it did produce tensions. What happens then? Frank, Reed again. Whether a new paradigm is accepted, new means having a shift, whether a new paradigm is accepted or not, depends on the strength of the former practices and the power of those defending the former set of beliefs. And it also depends on the persuasive ability of the persons introducing the new system. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is to a large degree what is happening here. There are competing views. And what we have struggled with is to get them on the table so we can actually look at them and actually discern and talk about them and work our way through. We have struggled with that. This morning I'm attempting to do a little bit of that. We must understand the issues underlying the issues. This struggle that we're facing is part of the reason there is leader burnout. Not only, but a part of it. Now, I said I'm not going to put some moral value on ideas, and I'm not, but I am actually going to stake out a position this morning you know, God has blessed the congregation of harmony in many ways, much more than we deserved back then. Personally, I'd like to see the harmony paradigm continue. With any change that occurs to be occurring slowly and carefully. That's the position of all the leaders here. We have observed by the hard way sometimes that great enthusiasm and great promises do not always deliver what they promise. So when new ideas and new promises emerge or when the old paths we have done are questioned, we have a right to question the new ideas. When we have, by God's grace, experienced blessings in the past, we are rightfully slow to toss that aside and accept a new way. Now, of course, we can improve. We want to be more effective for God. We want everyone's input. All, everybody brings spiritual gifts to the table. And we will change. Absolutely we will change. We need to change. We need to change. But as we change, I am committed to continue the original paradigm we had when we left Harmony. Implicit with that paradigm is many views, such as separation of church and state. The non-resistance, outward adorning, separation from the world, association with other dissimilar groups, family life, recreation, music, evangelism, views on human nature, and we could go on and on. And I want to acknowledge my own failure in not being clear many times. And I'm still not. And I confess that I have reacted out of fear more than out of love many times. And that must stop for me. That must stop. And I'm fully committed to doing that by the power of God. So what do we do going forward? Well, we need love. Lots of it. Honest love. Open love. Unafraid love. Kind love. Understanding love. We need lots and lots of love. And it has to go both ways. But I wanted to be understood that this is not an open contest to see who can win the most delegates and therefore move forward to win the election. That's not what we're here for. Over the years at Harmony, newcomers were encouraged to come on in and blend with the congregation and be learners. Talk about visitors who started attending. Come on in. Blend in. Learn who we are. Listen. Learn. In time, if it went well, they became an integral part of the congregation and contributed to the whole as the others did. Occasionally, someone started attending with no intention of blending in. They either were who they were and weren't interested or going to adapt. Or else they thought that the whole congregation should adapt to them. Both ways. We had them both ways. They came in with no intention of blending in or with the intention of bringing the congregation to their ideas. This always brought trouble. Always of some kind, and at one time, it almost blew the congregation apart. Newcomers blending in. That is actually somewhat what we had in mind when the Oasis began. Problem was when nearly half the church is new, but none of the leaders are. Now, what? Same thing. Learn who we are. Listen, and learn, and blend. In time, if things go well, we will all be an integral part of this new congregation. If things do not go well, we will blow apart. That's not a sustainable congregation. And frankly, some of the reason we are beginning to interact with other congregations a little more closely. I'm sorry, that is some of the reason we're interacting with other congregations a little more closely. And we could ask, is it out of fear? But depending how you look at it, I call it wisdom wisdom. It's not the full answer, but if we want to look at an analogy, let's look at it this way. Working closely with other congregations, especially when you're a little sick, or maybe a lot so, is like taking an antibiotic. Say, no, we don't interact with other congregations, but in the meantime, we may not survive. Let's take an antibiotic Let's get some input from others. Let's walk with some others. It's not the answer, but maybe in the short term, it is very much wisdom, especially if the life is at stake. Let's let not our ideals be so strong that we will allow the body to die rather than to take some medicine, even if it might seem a little bit bitter. In closing, I have a verse... In Hebrews 6 9, I'll just read that. But beloved, we are persuaded of better things of you and that, and things that accompany salvation, though we just speak. I have been really hard this morning. I don't know what you, some of you are thinking by now. I have bare my heart. And the only way to bear your heart is to bear your heart. But I am persuaded of better things, and I am persuaded of things that accompany salvation, even though I speak like this. Even though I raked us over the coals this morning, I am not discouraged. My desire is to bring things up on the table. We need to understand what's going on. I love the congregation of Oasis. I love coming here Sunday mornings. I love interacting with you brothers. All of you. I think I can honestly say that. Each and every one of you is important and to be valued. There is a lot of potential at Oasis. Let's realize it together, but let's not start a revolution to do it. That's my plea. So, that's what the Lord has given to me this morning. May it be the beginning of the conversation and not the end. May God bless you.